Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Oftentimes, we are buffeted by these historical forces that we just really don't and can't understand in the moment. And what we need to prepare for instead is to have a slog, because that is statistically what is more likely. And the only thing that will keep you motivated through that slog, through the difficult part, is if you actually genuinely have affection for what you are doing. The, The truth is, We can control the process, but not the outcome. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my good friend, Dori Clark. Dori is a strategy consultant, executive coach, and keynote speaker who has worked with clients including Google, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, Fidelity, Yale University, the IMF, and the World Bank. She was named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards, as well as one of the top 10 communication professionals in the world by Global Gurus. She writes regularly for the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company and Business Insider, and is the author of Entrepreneurial You, Stand Out and Reinventing You. She has a new book coming out later this year, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Welcome, Dori. Harsha, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. No, no, it's completely my pleasure, Dori. Um, And it it does mean so much to have you here today. As I first came across you um, in a video on a personal development course five years ago, and your work really resonated with me. I reached out to you through the internet, you kindly responded, and five years later, here we are. We are, now Now we're homies. We got, to, <laughs> we got to hang out and meet when I was in London. That was really wonderful. Fantastic. Is there a quote that uh, resonates uh, with you, Dory? Is there something you'd like to share with the listeners today? Whenever I think about a favorite quote for me, one that always comes to mind is uh, by Theodore Roosevelt. And, uh, you know, there's the, the more famous of his quotes, Brene Brown has, uh, has kind of uh, colonized with the, you know, the man in the arena daring greatly. <laughs> and that's a good quote. That is a legitimately good quote. However, I actually prefer a different Theodore Roosevelt quote uh, because, you know, so much of the world that we live in these days is just massively uncertain. And, uh, you know, we've seen with pandemics and the like, just how unpredictable things are. And so uh, the quote that I like says, uh, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing you can do is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great thing because actually inaction is a is a terrible thing. You actually have to just get out there and, and try to do something and make things happen. But but one thing I'm sure that our listeners are, are dying to know, it's about Philip the cat. Is he around today? And it, <laughs> is he a Harvard man as well or cat? <laughs> well, technically Philip is from the Bronx. So <laughs> If uh, if if he's if he's a, a Harvard man, um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know about it, but um, you know is that Columbia who, who then? Is to say? <laughs> That's right. I think Columbia is probably more likely. Um, yes, the the kittens are, uh, are are sort of sprawling around here. I'm not sure where Philip went to. He might make a cameo, but until about five minutes ago, he was uh, sleeping on my shin. So okay. uh, he he does make himself known. It, it's good to be a cat. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially on a day when there's a blizzard. I, I keep telling them, I'm like, guys, so much better that you're in here and not in 18 inches of snow. Um, wow. they, they seem they seem sort of indifferent. They're like, yeah, whatever. There are birds outside. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, let, let's go back to the beginning. Um, I, I was reading up, doing my sort of hardcore research on you. And I, I saw that you left high school at 14 and graduated from Smith College with a major in philosophy and then went to Harvard Divinity School for a master's. So what was the driver behind that? Were you just a sort of a philosophical genius when you were young? Um, that's a, a very kind framing. Thank you. Uh, certainly, I was interested in philosophical questions. I still I still am. I love a good, uh, you know, late night conversation. Oh, sure, yeah. But uh, really, I would say that you know, the, the, the driving impetus was that I, when I was growing up, I was just not really very happy where I grew up. I grew up in a little town and it was not where I wanted to be. And I didn't feel like I had friends that understood me. And I wanted, I just kind of wanted to get on with my life. I'm like, you know, tick tock, like <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. Uh, so I, I finagled a way to go to college on an early entrance program and that that was that was fantastic. I'm actually on the board of the university that I attended for for my first two years. You're right that I uh, got my degree from Smith, but the first two years uh, I was at Mary Baldwin University in Virginia, which had the early entrance program. And so I, I have the pleasure of serving on their board now, which is kind of a nice way of coming full circle and giving back. Wow, fantastic! And then I think from uh, HDS, you went on, I think, and worked at the Boston Phoenix paper as a journalist. But I believe after a year, you had some pretty bad luck in September two thousand and one. Um, would you like to just go into that, uh, Dory? Obviously, I know it's a painful thing, but just to give our, our listeners a context of your career arc. Yeah, thank you, Harsha. I I did my first uh, job after I finished graduate school was working as a reporter at an alternative news weekly called the Boston Phoenix, and it was it was very exciting for me to land there. I wanted a career in journalism. The Phoenix was a paper that I considered very cool, very uh, cutting edge. It had launched many many famous uh, journalists that for people who are journalism geeks, you know, every, at least uh, everybody would would know who they are. And uh, so it was kind of an august paper at which to begin one's career. So it was very exciting for me. Uh, but I, I picked a bad time to be doing it, basically. And I, I think it's an important lesson in the sense that oftentimes we are buffeted by these historical forces that we just really don't and can't understand 
in the moment. Uh, when I entered journalism, I thought, oh man, this is a great industry. I could do this forever. This is going so well. Um, and you know, I was I was not wrong in yeah. the sense that looking around me, people forget how quickly change can happen. The year 2000 was the best year ever in history financially for the journalism industry, wow, the print gosh. journalism industry. It was, I mean, just rolling in money, rolling in advertising revenue. And then, you know, basically by the next year, it's like, oh, there's this internet. And so I got laid off. I was sort of, you know, the, the last, last in first out sure. situation. And uh, the industry just got decimated over uh, over the course of the ensuing decade, you know, 10, 20 years, uh, more than 40% of American journalists lost their jobs. But, but I think the interesting thing is that literally the day after you got sort of let go, 9-11 happened. And if you're thinking about a worse time, you know, journalism, 9-11, all these things coming together, it's just a dreadful time. And I think it's, it's really helpful for people who are thinking, obviously, Dory, there's a 2021 Dory Clark, but the 2001 Dory Clark, obviously, you're there without a job, probably without the network that you have now. That's a pretty tough time. And, and there's a lot of adversity there. So it's amazing how you've come out on the other side. Yeah, thank you. It, it was a difficult time. I mean, there were, and there were all these like subsequent indignities, like, I there there was an annual awards ceremony called the New England Press Association uh, Awards. Uh, you can see I'm still holding a grudge, and uh, <laughs> so the New England Press Association Awards, and I was nominated for two awards, uh, which I ended up winning. I ended up actually winning these wow. awards, but uh, I didn't get to go to the ceremony because the paper had already let me go. So <laughs> That's they so picked bad. up. Yeah, so they picked up the the plaques or whatever, and then they gave they gave them to me afterwards. I had to like come collect them or something. So it was, it was just very uh, you know humiliating all around. But yes, you're exactly right. It was a terrible time to be searching for a job. Obviously, there was uh, you know a a, sh a short but dramatic economic downturn after nine eleven when everyone. Uh, just wasn't sure what was going on. Uh, nobody was flying. Nobody felt like things were safe. And so to be out looking for work during that time was uh, was discomforting. You know, and, and I can totally understand how you obviously must have slightly hard feelings because um, I think you're a Scorpio. Is that right? Because um, <laughs> That I'm must explain everything. I'm, I'm a Scorpio <laughs> as well. So I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, we can I'm, I'm technically with... on the technically on the cusp of Scorpio and Sagittarius. So there's there's heated debate about which which I actually am. Uh, but uh, but yes, if your question is, do I believe in vengeance? The answer is yes, Harsha, I do. <laughs> well, I, I won't cross you and please don't cross me, Dory. <laughs> Fair, fair trade. I like it, my man. We're good. <laughs> but, but what I really liked about the way you sort of changed, almost pivoted from that point, was that obviously you had this you know, journalism skill. You could write. Obviously, you're an analytical, you know, highly intelligent person. But then you pivoted to other things, and then you sort of worked on how Dean's campaign was like 2003-04, which I think was really interesting in the in the sense of he sort of developed the whole idea of getting small donors, which Obama sort of picked up after that. Do you remember your time fondly with, with Howard Dean? I, I do. I mean, working on the Dean campaign was very exciting. 
you know, just in terms of the the play by play, I had been a political reporter at the Boston Phoenix, and I had failed. I tried and failed to get another job uh, covering politics. And so, uh, with with a limited uh, set of abilities of things I could do, I said, "Well, okay, I can write and I can do politics. I guess I'll I'll come in on the other side." And so I ended up switching over and working on campaigns. And so first I worked on a governor's race in Massachusetts, and then I worked for for Howard Dean's presidential campaign as a uh, spokesperson. Yes, it was it was a tremendously exciting time. I mean, to be able to to be part of that campaign, especially which really did you know much more than many campaigns have lit- literally a little bit of everything you know it started out as this very obscure underfunded campaign uh within 6 to 8 months we had risen to being the presumptive front runner the presumptive nominee and then it all crashed in like a month so it it, it was you know the, the dramatic arc of human history all in like this 9 month period yeah, but it's better to have tried and, and you know, at least you, you got out there, you put your hat into the ring and you tried. So, um, you know, all, you know, all credit to you. But then I think from there, you decided to sort of start your own business. And you thought, it, I think uh, re- reading from your book, it was successful, but you thought to get to the next level, you really needed to change in some way. And I think that led to your first book, Reinventing You, which I think looks at uh, personal branding and reinvention. Is that right, Dory? It is. I um, Technically, there was one more way station in between, which is that I ran a bicycling advocacy organization for two years, uh, which you know, I think at the time, most people who knew me thought was exceedingly random, uh, but actually turned pivotal in some ways because it was it was the first time that I had actually run an entire business rather than just doing a piece of something. And so it taught me really important lessons about entrepreneurship and about um, what it would take to build a successful consulting practice later on. So it was a valuable sojourn from that perspective. And, and did you meet somebody, um, a, a HBR contact, who was a, a bicyclist? Or, is that right? Or yeah, that uh, that actually was uh, sort of how that came out. So, right. so one of the things that I've been doing now for over a decade is being a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. And the way that it originally started, um, now I by this time I was already a consultant and I was already self employed, but I. I had managed to have this very nice bike. <laughs> and I, I got this very nice bike because since I was running a bicycling advocacy organization, they gave you this this uh, bike shop gave uh, what they call an industry discount, cool. and so you could get you know whatever it was I don't know twenty five percent off or something. It was a good deal on a very fancy bike, and I uh, took advantage of that. But after a few years, I decided, okay, I don't really need a bike this fancy anymore, especially after I had left uh, work at the organization. So I wanted to, you know, essentially uh, downscale a little bit and get a more reasonable bike. But, you know, I was like, all right, well, I should sell it. So I put an ad up on Craigslist and I was living in Boston at the time, which of course is where the Harvard Business Review is based. And I did, in fact, end up selling my bike to a copy editor at Harvard Business Review, and she became my conduit, uh, which enabled me to start writing, you know, for them. I, I think that's so fascinating because I think luck is everywhere around us, and you just almost have to take a, a, an opportunity to really look carefully. And there are always contacts around. I mean, I, I watch YouTube a little bit too much, but actually, I found Christian Bush through YouTube, and and actually, I think it's just keeping your mind open as to 
possibilities. So um, yeah, just you know, do different things. It's a really interesting sort of process. But but I really like the way you sort of changed your mindset and looked to the bigger picture rather than just sort of settling with a, a decent sort of marketing career. And I think that resonates with the message of this podcast, which is about trying to change your perspective and just look at things in a different way. Um, you know, rather than doing things the way that they've always been done, just try to be a bit bit smarter. Absolutely. Why why did this topic appeal to you specifically, Harsha? What was it that uh that, that sort of resonated in your world? Well, I, I think it's that whole idea of, you know, try to make decisions and make them in a, a more strategic way. But, but actually, a lot of it is, is also slightly serendipitous because I came across this neuroscientist called Gabby Otolikita and, you know, really connected with her. And it's this whole idea of trying to almost re- rewire your brain to try and just be more efficient. And also, I think just in terms of creativity, I really like the idea of the grind because if you get into a topic and really um, uh, go deep, all these other avenues come from it, which, um, and I think that inspiration sometimes comes about from just, um, you know, knowing your subject really well. You don't have to be a genius, but just, I think, love your subject, which, you know, obviously you do with branding and all these other areas. So, you know, I think that that's the thing that just fascinates me. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. Um, but I think from there, you uh, went on to you know, writing standout. And I think that's the process of trying to find your breakthrough idea and creative following. And I particularly like the idea of content creation, um, because I think when you actually create content, you have the power and you have the control of the situation which in a lot of situations you don't in your job. So I, I think, and, and content creation, I think is very important to you because it, it's amazing. You seem to just produce so much content and all the time. It's very impressive, Dory. Oh, well, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I feel like these days I don't do nearly as much as I used to. There was a period between 2012 and 2015 where I was writing for Forbes in addition to writing for the Harvard Business Review. And I was doing oh, usually, I guess, an average of about 10 posts per month uh, for Forbes. So I, I was just kind of going nuts with it because I, I realized that I had to go very deep in content creation. So um, over a period of, of that you know, two, three year period, I was generating hundreds of articles. Um, certainly I don't create things at, at that pace anymore. Although I do different types of content creation. Now, for instance, I do a weekly interview show for Newsweek, um, which is one of the, the backbones of my week uh, as of late. But but I think with, with content creation, uh, in terms of, I think, a numbers game, I think that's a really powerful thing. Because if you can put out a lot of content, you just never know what's going to resonate with people. And, and the funny thing is, two pieces that I've done, um, and uh, you know, w- w- one had something to do with uh, just a post on Robert Cialdini and your interview with him. I mean, that was incredibly popular, but it wasn't, I didn't think it was particularly groundbreaking, uh, you know, in terms of me sharing it. So you never know where you, your audience is or what the interest is going to be. So if you just keep putting stuff out, I think it's really interesting. It's true. I'm, I'm definitely a big believer in that, that you need at-bats because it is very hard to predict. I mean, when I was first writing my, my first book, Reinventing You, um, prior to coming to that as a topic, I had come up with three different ideas for potential first books that I could create. And, you know, it turns out like pretty much no one was interested in any of them. Like, <laughs> like my best thinking led me to these ideas that everyone's like, eh, whatever, whatever. And then reinventing you actually stemmed 
from a like a random blog post that I had written for Harvard Business Review that for some reason I did not think it was special in any particular way, but that was what the market was like this, we want this. And so it ended up turning into my first book. And, and it's funny because you're talking about the market. I think trying to predict the market, sort of thinking this is what they want, that's quite a dangerous game. And I think if it comes from you and what you're passionate about, then I think there's a sort of authenticity and truth about that. Whereas if you're trying to sort of game the, the situation, it doesn't really work very well, does it? Right. And I, I, I think it's both and. I mean, it's also, frankly, unfortunately, equally likely that the thing that you're passionate about, everyone still won't care. <laughs> so, so we have to just be honest about that. Um, but there is the magic Venn diagram of like, oh, it's a thing you actually care about. And oh, look, the market actually cares about it. And so that is lovely when that happens. And it's like, you know, I felt like with my book, with getting published, that you just felt like, the whole process is pushing a boulder up a hill and like nothing's working, nothing's working. I'm like, all right, I'll put more effort in. And then finally, when Reinventing You came out first as a blog and then yeah. as an article in Harvard Business Review magazine, and then agents started coming to me, literally three different literary agents reached out to me. I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> this is how it's supposed to feel when things are easy, <laughs> like when people actually care. Oh, now I see. It was, it was just like a bonkers contrast. <laughs> and it's funny, they're returning your calls. <laughs> Whereas before, yeah. like, who's, who's Dory Clark? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the boot's on the other foot now, isn't it? <laughs> Revenge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but, but also, I think the, the whole idea of sometimes like waiting around for a flash of inspiration, you just never know where that's going to come from. So in a way, I think there's that guy, I think Nate Silver, who you talked about in, uh, in Stand Out. In uh, where, where he developed five three eight purely from politics and baseball, um, that that's quite an interesting topic. He just went after something that he really enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's certainly it's certainly the best starting point in the sense that not always. I mean, occasionally we hear about the kind of you know overnight success that everybody gets excited about, and then they berate themselves that <laughs> you know why is it working for me? <laughs> I mean, it's not to say overnight success doesn't happen. It does sometimes, but very rarely, very very rarely. And what we need to prepare for instead is to have a slog because that is statistically what is more likely. And the only thing that will keep you motivated through that slog, through the difficult part, is if you actually genuinely have affection for what you are doing. And, and I suppose in your case, it was like an 11-year overnight success from 2001 to 2012 with reinventing you. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Actually, technically, it was even 2013. So it's like, <laughs> it takes a while. <laughs> but, but, but I think the interesting thing is once you have your idea or your um, product or strategy together, as you talk about in sta Stand Out, you've got to be able to develop a, a network and a community so you can get your ideas out there. Because I think it's great that you've got the idea, but essentially you've got to market yourself and the idea. And I think it's one of the sad things about the world that unfortunately shrinking violets um, don't get ahead all the time. You really have to not be sharp elbow, but you have to sort of get yourself and your message out there. For sure, for sure. And, you know, I, I think that, Sometimes there are a lot of stories that we tell ourselves about it. You know, we we often will say, "Oh, well, you know, I I don't 
I don't want to behave in that nasty manner that other people do. I want to be above the fray. I, you know, and, and so in, in our minds, sometimes it's a matter of purity or moral rectitude that like, oh, well, I, you know, I don't want to do what those people are doing because it is offensive to my values. And I think, you know, of course, right. You, nobody wants to do things that are offensive to their values. However, what I have seen much more often is that people sometimes subconsciously perhaps, but nonetheless construct a straw man that they are opposing. And they look at the most egregious, most frankly, ineffective forms of self-promotion and say, well, I'm not going to be like that. Well, of course you shouldn't be like that because that's not working. That's like, it's, it's not only obnoxious, it is ineffective. And so Thank I you. think that what we need to understand is that, uh, you know, Michael Gerber talks about this very eloquently in the classic book, The E-Myth Revisited. Uh, you know, if you, if you uh, want to run a bakery, your job isn't just baking pies, that's half the job, but the other half the job is actually running the business and buying the flour and selling to customers and advertising so people know about it. And if you think you can get away with just doing half the work by like, well, I like to bake pies. Well, then that is called a hobby. You have to do the other <laughs> part too. Thank and you. so I think for all of us as professionals, we have to realize it's not just if you're an entrepreneur and you own a bakery, the issue is that doing your job is half the battle, but making sure that that other people understand what you are capable of, that is the other half the battle. It doesn't mean that you have to do it in some slimy way, but it does mean that somehow we need to be deliberate about making sure that our message is getting across. Otherwise, you will be consistently underestimated for the rest of your life. And I don't think anyone wants that. And I think that's really good about sort of being part of your community and seeing what you're doing, because I think that you manage to do that, but in a pleasant way. And I think that is really important because I think you, you're, you're obviously cognizant of the world and the way it is. And you have to be you know, quite tough sometimes if you're negotiating with clients or trying to get fees, you know, whatever it is, you know, nobody's going to give you money uh, you know, just because they like you. You have to sort of give a, a decent business case. So I think that, you know, I, I totally agree with you, Dory, in that, in that respect. Um, and bravo for doing what you've done, because I think you have done it in a, I, I'm not trying to be sycophantic here, but I think you've done it in a, in a nice sort of way. Well, I, I appreciate it. I mean, anytime you can, you can get the, the British seal of approval. It's like, <laughs> whoa, a British person likes this. Well, damn, that's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> and I know you guys have a high bar when it comes to, uh, when it comes to issues of, you know, not being tacky in personal branding. So I appreciate the affirmation. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but sort of just going on to your, uh, TEDx talk in Lugano, which I absolutely loved about future-proofing your career. And I think that looks at some elements of entrepreneurial you. Um, and I think obviously this is a major worry for all of us today because we're just concerned about how do we make money? How do we keep our income streams alive? And I, and I think in a way you're, that, that book is quite interesting just in terms of trying to diversify your income stream. Yeah, thank you. I mean, certainly for me, I wrote the book Entrepreneurial You as a bit of a an explore an, an exploration and an exploratory journey for myself as well because I I really wanted to understand this question of how can we get better and smarter at creating passive income streams. Um, I think this is relevant for 
for everybody really. But for me in particular, the, the driver was the fact that a lot of the work that I was doing as of a few years ago was keynote speaking, uh, which is, you know, it's well-played. It's fairly glamorous in some ways. I mean, you know, glamorous in some ways, cause you're on a stage, not glamorous in that you're like constantly in taxi cabs <laughs> yeah. and overtired, yeah. Yeah. but you know, nonetheless, but I realized that it's a very wearying yeah. way to earn money. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of things that can happen, you know, um, either you just get sick of it or you maybe you get you get sick maybe you get some kind of an illness you can't do it. it that was worrisome because it was very dependent on my labor and so i thought how can i explore other ways to earn revenue that are not quite so dependent on the the this sort of time for dollars framework and so i began writing entrepreneurial you as a way to understand that better to understand things like online course creation or membership communities or blogging or podcasting for money or th things like that and so i interviewed some of the smartest people that i know who run businesses in that space and have been successful so that i could learn myself and share that knowledge with other people so that hopefully we could all uh, essentially level up and get get a little bit more financial freedom and, and i think that's a really interesting point because essentially if you've built up a brand you essentially have an asset and you're trying to sort of monetize that. And I don't think there's anything wrong about that because essentially if you hadn't put in the thousands of hours of work and all your Forbes articles and, and then hopefully leveraging that now. When you are thinking about creating multiple revenue streams, one of the first objections uh, that someone might raise is, oh, but you know, I don't have time for that. I don't have bandwidth for that. Aren't you essentially saying that I just have to be doing 10 different things? And what I like to clarify is the point is not that you're literally doing 10 different things, which of course would pull you in too many directions. I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot to take in. Uh, and for each one, you have to be building different audiences and communities and things like that. That's, that's too much. Uh, what I am suggesting is that instead of what the model is for most people, which is, oh, well, I have a job and I get money from my job. <laughs> like, you know, that's yeah. that's usually it for most people. Or maybe <laughs> if you have your own business, it's, oh, well, I have my own business and yeah, I offer either uh, coaching or I offer workshops. And like, okay, well, that's, that's great. You know, it's like two different things, but that's not exactly de-risked, right? Like sure. what what I am suggesting is that we think about our core intellectual property that we have created, and then think of a myriad of different ways to leverage that same thing, but to different audiences, packaging it in different ways at different price points, so that you really can actually diversify the risk of your business, but using the same core concepts and core competencies that you're working on. And so you're absolutely right. Once you've taken the time upfront to build a trusted brand or to build a relationship with your customers, then, you know, the good news is that anything else downstream becomes easier. If you already are a fan of my books, it's not that hard if I tell you, oh, hey, Harsha, I have a new book coming out in September. It's, it's not like it's going to take 20 hours for me to yeah. convince you, you're totally. probably like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'll, I'll pre-order it, you know? And it's like, great. That's, that's what we're all hoping for in our businesses. We'll get onto the plugs at the end. Dorothy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really liked, um, I think Joanne Chang's story in, in Stand Out when she looked at her job, you know, I think she became a baker and the whole way she went about getting that job. That was, I think, so clever because rather than doing what everybody else is doing, doing a CV, sending it out, 
just thinking differently. Um, and I think that that was such a clever thing for her to do, send out these eight letters to the top chefs in her city. Don't you think so? I mean, the whole idea of reframing the situation? Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I am giving a talk, I'm giving a keynote for the, the IFC, the International Finance uh, Committee, on Wednesday, uh, as we're taping this. And Joanne is one of the stories that I'm going to be telling during oh, that cool. presentation. Because what I often hear from clients that bring me in is that a value that they would like to emphasize uh, in, in my talk, that, that they would really like to um, encourage their, uh, their staff to embrace is proactivity around one's career and one's career trajectory. You know, how, how do you shift from the mindset of the past where it's, oh, well, they hand you promotion, they hand you professional development, like things happen somehow. Um, how do we shift it to a more modern understanding where people are really directing things for themselves? They have a lot more agency. They have the ability to say, you know, actually, I'm not really interested in doing this thing. What I'd like to do is this other thing. How can we make that happen? You know, that that is the kind of initiative that is sought after at so many companies and organizations today. And I think her story really embodies it in the sense that, I mean, yeah, you, you can do things the same way that everybody else does, but you have to understand that your odds in, you know, in this particular instance, it would be, you know, an underqualified person, at least based on one's resume, applying for a position, you know, let's say you're competing against 200 people and you're the least qualified. Well, that doesn't really look good for you now, does it? <laughs> um, but if you actually want to be chosen, then you need to do something different. You need to change the game so that the game is in your favor. And that's, that's really what she did. And I think it's a powerful lesson. And it's funny, Dory, you talk about that because um, a, few, a few years before Stand Out came out, um, I, I was working at one of the big accounting firms and I started learning Japanese. And it wasn't for any particular reason, but I thought it might be an interesting way of standing out. And I tried to get onto the Japanese clients, but unfortunately didn't manage to do it. But then bizarrely, I found out that there were these free Japanese lessons going on in our company. And, and there happened to be other sort of senior people at these lessons. And it's not that my Japanese was great. It's, it's the, theirs just wasn't that good. But then you build up a friendship and I managed to get a, a secondment into their team. So it's funny how the way these things work out. You, know, you, you just wonder, is it luck or is it just doing something different? That's a great story, Harsha. I love it. It's a perfect example. And I, and I did get to eat some nice Japanese food as well. <laughs> well, I mean, really, that's the point. <laughs> And, and the other story I really liked was that John Lee Dumas, the podcasting guy. I mean, that was really interesting how rather than just producing one podcast a week, he, he did seven episodes a week to just get the numbers up. I mean, that's, it's a really clever way of reframing the whole situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what you're, what you're pointing to is, I think, again, a lesson that we can probably all benefit from, which is everybody had the same information, which is uh, if you were wanting to start a podcast and, and if you were hoping to make money from that podcast, you know, what people really, you know, everybody knew it. Oh, okay. It's the number of downloads. That's the metric that mattered. So how do you increase the number of downloads? Well, one way you can increase the number of, of downloads is, you know, you get, you get really famous and you get more subscribers and then, oh, then everyone's listening. Well, that's actually kind of hard, right? Um, you know, you're, uh, I, I mean, yes, you can do it, but it's not easy to like, okay, get more famous all of a sudden. John looked at that same question. He said, how do I get more downloads 
what if I made more episodes? And then instead of somebody, you know, my existing fan downloading it once per month or, you know, or once per week, they're downloading it seven times per week. I have just seven X my returns. That's actually pretty brilliant. Or you can get Dory Clark on your podcast. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're fully expecting to seven X your returns overnight here. But but the really interesting thing yeah, about your career arc, as we sort of touched on before, it's that journey from sort of 2000 to, you know, your the book first book coming out in 2013 and really sort of putting in the hard yards, putting in the grind, just doing the work, obviously having the rejections and it, it makes you tough. Um, and do you think that's part of the inspiration for The Long Game, which I, I love the title? Ah, thank you very much. Yeah, so The Long Game is is uh, my new book uh, coming out in September. And yes, I would say that the inspiration really is the fact that in the work that that I've done over the past now uh, 15 years, my, my business is 15 years old uh, this year, in, in sculpting that and trying to build it to a successful enterprise, and also the work that I've done with private coaching clients and uh, members of the recognized expert course and community of which of which you're part. Thank you. Um, I have gotten to work with a lot of folks who are intent on the quest of building their platform, building their profile, really trying to reach more people with the good work that they do. And I, I've just really seen firsthand the level of frustration that people have because I think that our culture tends to talk incorrectly, or at least in misleading ways, about what the arc of success, what the path of success looks like. And as a result of people getting incomplete information about it, I think a lot of people give up too soon, which is really depressing for me because I all along I have really championed the idea that I want the best ideas to win, not the loudest voices, but the best ideas. But that is not going to be possible if people don't know how to win or they don't know what that process looks like. So in the book, I really try to lay out my understanding um, from a, you know, a decade plus of research about what it actually takes to be successful in today's business environment. How do you get your ideas out there? And how especially do you withstand the troughs that uh, so many of us face at various points along the journey? I think if you can, uh, yeah. So, so, so me starting with this podcast now, I have no idea how good or bad it's going to be. But my vision is the whole idea of trying to produce something good, and I also want to make sure I'm going to produce, say, a minimum number of episodes. Because I think if you get sort of too worried about downloads or popularity, uh, it's so easy to just get depressed. You're looking at sort of Apple Podcasts. Do I have another five star review or whatever? But I think if you say to yourself, look, I'm going to focus on producing good quality stuff and, and focus on that, then I think that's just far more important. Yeah, absolutely. We we have to learn to focus on the metrics that we can control. And the, the truth is, we can control the process, but not the outcome. Totally. And if we're if we feel good about the process, if we and I mean, you know, this is the thing, right? Like you don't want to blindly be the idiot that keeps doing the wrong thing for 20 years. You know, it's not, it's not like, oh, just, just follow the process. <laughs> but, you know, you want to be smart about it. You want to get reality checks. You want to, you know, look around. Uh, but, you know, but you can't be looking around every five minutes, because, you know, like as they say, right, the, the watched pot never yeah. boils. Like, exactly, yeah. 
there's there's a, one of the, the concepts that I talk about in the long game is the difference between being in heads up mode and heads down mode. And when you're in heads up mode, that's a great time to look around. Perfect. What's what's happening here? What's best practices? What should I be doing? But once you commit, once you decide, you go into heads down mode, you stay in heads down mode until your, your previously determined interval, uh, because sometimes you just need to execute. And uh, certainly it's a real pathology in modern society that so many people are constantly like, well, what should I do now? What about now? What about now? That they never get to executing. And then of course they don't get results and somehow they're surprised. So you got to do both. No, no, totally. And and I think that execution point is so crucial because I think if you can just think, okay, I've got this project that I want to do. Uh, I've got a timeline. It's got to drop at a certain point and just figure out how do I get it out of the door? It, it, obviously, you want it to be as, as good as possible and you don't want any ridiculous errors. But sometimes I think people are so worried about perfection, they just don't ship it out. And, and it's interesting, say, with a podcast, I was viewing it almost like a startup, just get the MVP um, and something that at least people like yourself can look at and you know, at least have some credibility that there's a logo. <laughs> it's actually on Apple Podcasts. I think that's important as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just just the key is getting it started, experiment, you know, be able to have something that you can look at and that you and other people can bounce off of so that that you have the ability to iterate. Nobody can iterate off of anything if it's in your head forever and not in the world. And one really interesting thing, I think, you know, post the sort of the pandemic is the idea of technology, how that's impacting so many areas of our lives. And and in a way, if you think of your business as a sort of startup and just thinking, okay, how do I get the technology uh, done, get it tested with the market? It doesn't have to be perfect, but at least you'll get an indication of what works, what doesn't work, maybe a a, a blog or a, a podcast or a videocast just to test the waters. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's the same principle that that eventually got me my book deal, right? Um, not intentionally. This was something I stumbled into, although now it is, in fact, a deliberate strategy that I employ and I encourage other people to employ it. But what my first book, Reinventing You, stemmed from was just, just a blog post, you know? And, and so it is so much better. It's infinitely better. Instead of taking, you know, 100 hours to write a book proposal, Spend a hundred hours and write, you know, whatever, uh, you know, we can, we can walk it back, you know, 20, let's say 20 20 blog posts, you know, and see which ones are the most popular. And that will give you so much more valuable data because it means that you're not going to be spending all the time on something that people aren't interested in anyway. Sorry, you should be an investment analyst, the way you're breaking all this down. You should have been a finance. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you, Arsha. Um, but uh, we're, we're sort of drawing to the end of our time. I know you've got a, a sort of a hard stop coming on. Now, obviously, this is a, a career development podcast. So it'd be really helpful, I think, for our listeners and any, anybody else who's out there. You know, what, what are your sort of top pieces of advice or strategies to you know, help somebody either, you know, they've been made redundant and they're looking for a job or just trying to find a new job? What, what would you say the best, you know, apart from obviously reading your books, which I would highly recommend? Thank you. Yes. Well, if if people are are looking for positions, I mean, obviously the the right starting place is with your existing network and, you know, re- reaching out 
it's also, you know, I think where a lot of people hesitate is especially if they're not a hundred percent sure what they what they want to be doing or where they want to be going. It uh, it can create a little bit of paralysis. You know, is uh, does it look bad if you're like, oh, I don't really know what I what I want to do? Do you have to get hyper specific? But then sometimes it pushes people to say, oh, sure, I want another job in supply chain. You know, because that's what you did before, and maybe you don't really want another job in supply chain, but you feel like you need something. You need something to tell people. A lot of times, folks struggle with that. And what I would say, and this is a topic that I talk about quite a bit in reinventing you, is it is good to be as specific as possible, but also don't be afraid to not have all the answers. Um, so for instance, you could say something like, well, um, I'm considering getting another job in supply chain, but I'm also exploring possibilities in this or this. So if you have you know, ideas or suggestions for me, please let me know. The key, the most important thing is not to pretend to a level of certainty that you don't have, because the worst thing you can do, I mean, we have to think about this overall is uh, really being about political capital. And so if you tell someone, oh, I definitely want to do this, and they expend political capital to help you get that, and then you sort of back out and say, oh, you know, I was just thinking about it, but no, I'm not really going to do it. Then you've, you've kind of burned that bridge. Totally. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's really just about being clear with folks where you are in the process so that they can help you uh, in an appropriate fashion. And I, I think that's a really interesting point because especially with your network, you you probably have one or two chances with them. You need to be really careful um, of pushing the boat out too much to get, because otherwise they look stupid that they've made an effort to get you in to an interview. And then suddenly you say, sorry, um, that's not what I wanted to do. And then it's not just that, that contact, it's his contacts as well, because he's going to put the message out that you're just a, a flaky sort of person. Right. Absolutely. It's, you know, and again, if you are upfront and you say, well, I'm thinking about this, I'm considering this, I'm, you know, in information gathering mode, then that's fine. Nobody's going to begrudge it. But what they are going to do is they're going to calibrate accordingly and they're going to say, okay, I will send her to my good friend who can give her a little advice. I'm not going to send her to like my best, really super important contact that I have to really expend a lot of political capital to, to get you in front of. I'm only going to do that if you are 100% certain, if you're 100% serious. But but the other thing I think is really interesting is that, say, if you're at the start of your career, um, you always have something which other people don't know. And um, you might know about social media or how to market something, which actually, I think the really interesting thing in today's economy, you have a vast um, you know, difference in, in ages in, in, in companies. But just because you're junior doesn't mean that you don't have good ideas. And you could actually know stuff which the guy at the top doesn't know. And I think the really uh, clever leader will pick that up. And they, they actually want to know what they don't know, not what they know. Yes, absolutely. It it is really true. Certainly, we're in a phase where things are moving pretty fast. Um, social media being a chief example, although not the only example. And you know, even even people who are you know pretty with it, even people who are you know Instagram influencers, they a lot of them have not figured out. TikTok, you know, it's it's just different enough that even if you're only a few years older and like, oh, you made it on Instagram, that doesn't mean that you have an intuitive sense of TikTok. And it certainly doesn't mean you have an intuitive sense of Clubhouse or whatever it is. I mean, these things keep popping up. 
<laughs> no, that that that's great. Uh, we we've covered so much ground uh, in in this uh, discussion. Um, are there any other sort of final thoughts? Uh, anybody you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, Oh, thank you, Harsha. Well, I appreciate it. Well, you you started by uh, by raising uh, the the specter of uh, of cats, and so I will say, you know, one one thing that I've done actually in the acknowledgement section of all three of my books is I've given a pitch to uh, to adopt homeless pets, uh, and so I'll give I'll give a shout out there. I have two uh, rescue kitties who are. Uh, right now, one's on the ottoman, one's on the couch. They're hanging out, uh, but I'm a big animal person and a big fan of uh, of pet adoption. So I'd love to steer steer people in that direction because uh, you know these these sweet sweet little friends need homes. And uh, I'll also mention just for anybody who's interested in diving more into the content that we talked about, I do have a free resource called the Entrepreneurial You Self-Assessment, and folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. Oh, that's, and, and actually, Dory, I was going to just say, um, apart from your website, uh, and all the information will appear in the show notes, uh, is there any other way that people could interact with you, LinkedIn, Twitter? Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, one of one of the great ways is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, every Thursday I've been running a uh, an interview show for Newsweek, and uh, it's it's quite exciting. Um, you know, it's um, an opportunity to talk with leading thinkers. The show is called Better, so it's about ways that we can take the the cutting edge knowledge uh, from finance and health and business and society and use it to improve our own lives. And so if people are interested in, in figuring out where and how to tune in and who all the guests are, uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn at doryclark.com slash LI and uh, get get that. And also my LinkedIn newsletter uh, has a rundown every week and that's at doryclark.com slash LinkedIn. Brilliant. Um, and obviously, if there's any other channel story, just let me know and I'll, I'll stick them on the show notes. But obviously, you've got your book, the big book. Is that September that it's coming out? The September the 21st, The Long Game from Harvard <laughs> Business Review Press. Excellent. Excellent. That That's great. So, Dory, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, um, I'm really looking forward to the time that we can actually catch up again in person because I think we'd, we'd have a really good time. Yeah. And, and we had a good time when we caught up the last time. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. No. Thank you, Harsha. Um, anyway, Dory, I, I really do appreciate, you know, you taking the time. Um, thank you so much again. It really has been such a, a fun time chatting with you um, and enjoy the rest of your day and the week. Great speaking with you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.